Welcome to the JCR, a Massey podcast where people and ideas intersect. I'm Cheng Shu, a PhD candidate in political science studying rebel movements in the Philippines. Today, I've been joined by award-winning journalist Patricia Evangelista. Patricia is a trauma journalist from the Philippines reporting on armed conflict and natural disasters. Her recently published book entitled Some People Need Killing, a memoir of murder in my country, chronicles the human stories of the drug war in the Philippines. Patricia Evangelista, welcome to the show. Honored to be here. Thank you for having me. We first met in 2019 uh, when you came to Canada as the Marshall McLuhan Fellow for Excellence in Journalism. The one thing that really stuck out to me was that uh, in the talk, you mentioned that in your early days as a trauma journalist, uh, one of the key events that you reported on was the Maguindanao Massacre. Mm -hmm. Uh, This event was referenced several times in your book as an inflection point in your career. So can you briefly tell me about what happened there and how this experience shaped your career and approach as a trauma journalist? The Maguindanao Massacre is framed, I guess globally, as the worst moment for journalists because 32 media workers were killed in a single day, the most ever it's happened. Um, For context, it was during the elections, it's framed as election violence. Uh, Warlord from a southern province in Mindanao Mm -hmm. wanted to maintain his seat as governor and someone from another province wanted to contest it. And the process is if you want to run for any position you file a certificate of candidacy. Now violence is rife during the elections particularly in that area. So instead of going, taking a car, going down the road to Sharif Aguak, which is where he was supposed to file his certificate, he sent his wife instead, with a presumption, she's a woman, it would be safe. Except uh, he covered his bets, so Mm. not just his wife. He sent his lawyers, he sent uh, people who were close to his family, and followed by a convoy of 32 media workers Mm -hmm. with the assumption again there was safety in numbers at some point that morning they were stopped at a hillside and uh, a phone call went out that they were going to die they were massacred that morning by the men of uh, of the warlords uh, they're called the Ampatuan clan, mm-hmm. including one of the sons. And they had machine guns, and they had a backhoe that was already digging up a mass grave. And while this was all happening, because it was an open road, a highway, mm-hmm. five more people were included in that death toll. Four people who were inside a car that was heading to the hospital, and a statistician who was inside mm-hmm. a red Toyota Vios just on his way to work. And uh, perhaps one of the most painful images was that they buried some of the people inside their cars, just drove them into the mass grave. So in the aftermath, a military commander said, when they were digging up the bodies, it was like a layer cake 
cars, corpses, corpses, cars, one after the other after the other, that by the time people came upon them, I guess they were slower than they expected. Some of the cars were still out there, some of the bodies were still on the ground, and some of the others were buried. I was, I think I must have been 23 years old. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I worked in Manila. I was a columnist for the Philippine Daily Inquirer. Um, and I was a, a freelance producer for ABS-CBN and the news channel, the English-speaking news channel. So technically, I was a freelancer. When I heard about it, I had other friends who were journalists who were like, we have to go. I mean, you can't not go. And uh, my ANC boss was trying to prevent me because I was young. Mm. I was a girl. And um, it might not have been safe, but there was a compulsion that I needed to see. We needed to be there. It was, we were journalists. So I flew in, maybe three days after I went with other journalists. And I remember that we were also in a convoy of vans, except we knew there was no safety in numbers. The government had sent people from, from unrelated areas. And um, one of them looked into the van and asked who we were. And the man said, oh, you're reporters, journalists. Take care, be safe. And I really understood there was no safety in numbers. If these armed men were worried for our safety, so we went in. By the time I got there, the, the crime scene had expanded. So I was standing outside the tape, but there were bodies under my feet and around me because it, you know, they've been digging and digging and digging. And somebody, they had brought in another backhoe to pull up the bodies. So someone had pulled up one body and dropped it in front of me at my feet. I could see them all. And I remember that they covered the bodies with banana leaves and newspapers, the same that some of them wrote for. There were entire publications that disappeared because they, these were small local agencies. One publication had seven people, six were dead. Wow. It was just the publisher who I interviewed. And I looked down and I saw a man's watch. His hand was outside the banana leaves and the flies were just flitting over the hand. I was 23. I had been covering disappearances, some extrajudicial killings, and I was reckless, you know, because you're young. And that was the moment I understood what I was doing was not the safest thing in the world. That there, there was a choice to be made here. And then I looked up at the hillside, and there were the photojournalists lined up, shadows against the sky. And I could see their telephoto lenses glinting in the light. And I knew that some of them had barely survived this. Some of them had chosen not to go. Some of them had to go to a hotel to piss. Mm -hmm. So they missed, you know, they missed dying by, by, by inches. And they were still there, yeah. still shooting. And I looked at them and I thought, in, in my imagination, it was like an honor guard mm. for the dead. This is what we do. I tell this story, I've told this story many times, and I, I tell it again and again because I can't forget it, but also because I was afraid I would. So there was no question I was covering the drug war or I was covering every disaster after that or every killing field after that because that was my reckoning. That was my decision. This I would keep doing this because once you see it, you have to. So. Walking into Duterte's drug war, whenever anyone asks why you did it, 
because you have to, because I was there at that one killing field and I wanted to stand with the honor guard. Mm. Wow, that's such a powerful, powerful motivator. And so I'm just curious um, because journalists such as yourself try to shed a light on the impunities of these actors in your country. And yet, many of them are still thriving. What's your takeaway about what this says about political families and the rule of law in the Philippines? We're not very good at reckoning with our past. Mm -hmm. And the Ampatuans are a good example. Certainly another example would be the fact that we survived a decades-long dictatorship in the 70s and 80s. Uh, I was born in 85, which was a few months before the People Power Revolution, mm -hmm. which threw out what we call the conjugal dictatorship of Imelda and Ferdinand Marcos. For a while, it felt like things would be better. I grew up under, under that belief that we were the freest press in Asia. We had a Bill of Rights that was bulletproof, all of that. And then last year, we elected as president Ferdinand Marcos Jr., the son of the former dictator. His vice president is uh, Sara Duterte, the daughter of Rodrigo Duterte, mm -hmm. under whose watch we had the Philippine drug war from 2016. So, as with the Ampatuans, as with the Marcoses, as with many other things, as a journalist, the only way for you to survive, if your point is to, as you said, shed light, which is a very romantic way of putting it, I wouldn't <laughs> go that far, the point is to, uh, to report, mm -hmm. to keep a record, is to negotiate your expectations, in that I do not believe that the work I do will... Um, bring justice, which is also the same thing. I tell the families I interview, it's not gonna make your lives better. Mm -hmm. It's not going to bring back justice. We're just creating a record mm. in the hope that at some point, perhaps it matters. But even if it doesn't, the record exists. Mm. So that's my negotiation. That's how I keep doing what I do in that I will try to write as compelling and as true a record as possible and because I have also squared with my own responsibilities as a citizen, the record is also my refusal to say all this slaughter is a grand thing. Because mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. what happened, right? Under Rodrigo Duterte, he ran on a platform of death and he was elected for it. He said that um, the scourge of illegal drugs was responsible for the shambles the country was in. And that if your neighbor's child is an addict, kill him yourself. Mm -hmm. It's a kindness mm -hmm. to his parents. He was elected saying that, saying all these things. So in large part, many of the people who were slaughtered were killed with the permission of many of my own people. So uh, if nothing else, I wrote a book to say I didn't, I didn't want to offer my permission. Yeah. And um, I must say, your writing is very, very compelling in the way that you tell these very real and human stories uh, of the drug war. And I think one thing that might surprise readers of your book, uh, perhaps outside of the Philippines, maybe even w within the Philippines, is 
to find out that a lot of these politicians that we're talking about who are responsible for so much of these abuses are embraced by the people most affected by their actions. Uh, early on in the book, you paint a vignette of a man whose own granddaughter became a collateral casualty in the drug war, and yet he's still wearing the Duterte apparel as he was talking to you. Um, you talk about the, uh, the counter-protests against uh, Europe Estrada's removal, which were mostly composed of the impoverished peoples whom he was stealing from. How do you make sense of this pattern that the victims are sometimes the most vocal supporters of their victimizers? I don't think it's a pattern that's uh, exotic to the Philippines, mm -hmm. fundamental to the Philippines. I think it's the same the world over. That mm -hmm. There are charismatic men all over the world who will tell a story we want to hear. And it is ironic that Duterte won because of a platform of violence, but he was voted in in an excess of hope because people believe this is a different guy. Mm. Maybe things will change. And you hold on to that. And it becomes part and parcel of who you are as a human being. In the same way Duterte embodied the story, mm. people embodied him. Uh, what, what did he say? He said that, uh, he said, you had your back. Mm -hmm. He had the struggle, said the struggle ended here, today. He said, fuck the bureaucracy, screw the bleeding hearts. He would draw a line and he would stand on the other side with a loaded gun. He told his story and the story he told was that everything, every failure, every difficulty is because of drugs. Mm. Sure criminality, sure corruption, but it was illegal drugs. But he took every anxiety and every fear fueled by decades of what you've seen as failed expectations. And then he gave the enemy a name. Mm -hmm. Drugs, he said. And these drug dealers, these everyone, um, they, they'll rape your sister and they'll butcher their fathers. And then they're bestial and bizarre and they'll fuck goats if mm -hmm. goats are all they could fuck. He created a story, he created a picture. And then people said, what a different guy. He's strange, he's funny, we applaud mm -hmm. him. But he also said, I'm one of you. He said, I'm no one special. He said, I'm just an ordinary killer. So he made himself every man. Mm -hmm. So every man could be Duterte. So it's that, it's a, it's a story so powerful, told by, by a man who embodied the story it made it so difficult to break away from it. It becomes who you are. People didn't say, we voted for Duterte. People said, we are Duterte. Mm -hmm. And that mattered. And it's the same on the other side. People who voted for the other candidates. You know, we are this person, that person. It's so deeply personal. And while you may recognize that a lot of his voters are impoverished, it, it crosses the middle class, the mm -hmm. upper class. You, right. It was a swath of society that was responsible for his election. Some due to desperation, some due to some political calculation, largely due to hope. Oh, hmm. It's going to be different. Yeah. So how do we reconcile these many faces of Rodrigo Duterte? I don't think any man has to be any one thing. 
in the same way every killer I interviewed also had family, also believed in religion and friends and God. I interviewed a vigilante who, he's the one who gave me the title of the book, yeah. <laughs> in that I was asking what it was like to kill people. He said it was a job. Not so much a job he was paid for, because he was also complaining he wasn't paid enough for it, or not paid at all, but that it was a responsibility. He said that every man who was killed made it possible for one less man to threaten the future of his children. He said, ma'am, I'm not a bad guy. I'm not all bad. It's just some people need killing. So for me, Rodrigo Duterte isn't one man or the other. It's just that my filter, my gaze, is from the killing on the street. But this is a, also a man who is hugely empathetic. He knows how to play a crowd because he understands the crowd, but he also knows how to go deep in what they need. Governments before him, presidents before him, could not go down, touch grass, and say, I know what you're feeling. I know you're starving. I know that the guns and the cannons and all of that is hard for you. Mm -hmm. So it is possible to give him credit where it's due, but also to say, that he destroyed quite a lot of the fabric of what it made possible for Filipinos to exist, which is to say, hey, not everyone needs killing, mm -hmm. or not some people need killing. So I don't think you need to square both things. Okay. I just think you have to accept that people are complicated. Do you accept the argument that only someone like Duterte could have brought peace to the Bangsamoro? No, okay. but I can't argue on a negative mm -hmm. in a vacuum. And I also know that peace in the Bangsamoro was not only because of Rodrigo Duterte. Mm -hmm. It's decades of work by many people, particularly people who said, we are angry. We have a lot of reason to be angry, but on the promise of a possibility, we will drop our guns and risk our lives for peace. You've met these men, yes. and you know how many sacrifices they made, mm -hmm. and how many failures other governments have made. And um, I wouldn't put the praise squarely at his feet. It's many people making many sacrifices. Mm -hmm. In the same way, I'll make the same argument on the other side. Duterte didn't slaughter thousands of people. There were other men behind those guns. There were other people who believed people should die. There were morticians who raked in the money. There were very nice, upstanding neighbors who wrote down names on scraps of paper and put them in anonymous boxes and said, these are drug dealers. Mm -hmm. There were vigilantes. There were young men who thought, I don't like my neighbor. I'm going to call him an addict and shoot him and nobody's gonna know. So complicity isn't one way. You're listening to the JCR, a Massey podcast. I'm Cheng Shu, and today I am speaking with Patricia Evangelista about her new book, Some People Need Killing, a memoir of murder in my country. President Marcos has, of course, decided to continue the drug war, but taken in a different direction. And he publicly stated that he wants to focus on rehabilitation. Have you seen any evidence that that is the new direction, in fact, that the drug war is taking, that the killings have slowed down and that rehabilitation has become the focus? I think it should be always a question of not whether it's better 
because it's it's again a low bar we're coming from mm -hmm. but a question of whether what's happening now is acceptable mm. there are still journalists being killed there are still young men being slaughtered on the street the claim is sometimes mistaken identity the claim is the standard claim they resisted arrest fought back i think our question is whether this is acceptable i don't think it's acceptable i don't think we need to relax the bar mm -hmm. just because a man sitting in malacanang doesn't say kill them all right whether rehabilitation is actually happening i'm not qualified to say i haven't been on the field at least since it's been said but i do know the reporters on the field mm -hmm. and they've still been covering the dead they've mm -hmm. been carrying on the work and salute to them Patricia, I, I just also want to say that I uh, very much identify uh, with your ascription as a trauma journalist mm -hmm. um, because my own research in the Philippines is actually driven by trauma as well. Um, the father of a very close friend of mine was uh, kidnapped and murdered by Abu Sayyaf in 2016. And this is what led me to this uh, seven-year journey to try to understand conflict and rebellion in the Philippines. So... I'm wondering if you can give me some advice from your experience, how those of us who engage with these human stories of trauma in our profession can find some semblance of solace and catharsis when stopping it is simply not an option. I don't know if catharsis is also an option. Mm. I know that self-care is important. I know it is important not to do this alone, to recognize that a tribe exists. This book took a village, mm -hmm. uh, covering took a village, and if there was one thing that did offer solace, there was an honor guard as well for this one, quite mm -hmm. a lot. And um, every moral choice I had to make, not even moral, ethical choice I had to make, I knew other people were making. We may have made different choices, but it mattered that I wasn't alone as to how to to deal with it in the aftermath I don't know I'm not yet at the aftermath I always thought when the book was done I would be done you know at, at least this part I don't think that's possible you carry people with you mm -hmm. you carry stories with you every interview you did will sit at your shoulder and ask you did you do enough did you do it well did you do it right and then the other side would be was the comma in the right place in the sentence? Mm -hmm. Was the language properly compelling enough that the image in your head is the image in who's reading? So it's both the writer and the journalist, and both of them are unhappy. And you keep wanting to revise and do it right. But it's done. Mm -hmm. The book is out. So I don't feel it's cathartic. I think there's more to be done, but I also know I'm not the camera. I cannot delete things. Mm -hmm. I have to absorb things. And for people like you and me, there's a limit to how much we can take. So we stop. Mm -hmm. Every so often we stop. I'm going to have to for a little bit just to try to be a human again yeah. before I'm a journalist again. Yeah. One thing that you mentioned in your book uh, quite early on that uh, also really struck me you mentioned that uh, you wanted to be the heroine that other people write about. So now I'm curious, from that young woman who was a world champion speech giver, who wanted to be the heroine that other people wrote about, to this award-winning 
trauma journalist with now a best-selling book. How has this self-image changed over the years as you've engaged in this work? To be fair, I was 12 when I wanted to be a heroine. <laughs> um, I'm trying very hard to be a good journalist and a good person. And that's very hard because the lines you draw as a journalist doesn't square with the lines a good human being would take. If a person on the field that you meet weeps at you and says, I cannot afford the coffin, you know you can afford it. You have a salary, you know? The human being should pay for the coffin. The journalist draws a hard line, I cannot. Because I cross one line and cross all others. Mm. Because it means I bought the story instead of anything else. To square that, you have to decide who you are. And um, I rarely crossed that line. Occasionally, I did. Uh, but now that it's over, that the book is done, I don't actually know who I am anymore. The compulsion, the next compulsion, is to go back in the field. I understand the field. The field is far bigger than I am. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe people like us go from one hell to the other because that's all we understand. Um, I'm going to try not to. The problem with this book is that I had, I had to look inward because it had to be written in the first person mm -hmm. because that was the demand of my publishing house. I never would have done it if they didn't demand it. And somewhere in the middle of all of it, I also recognized it was important to do it, that I, I had to understand. It, it, it had to be framed as also a citizen of a nation that was writing the book, not just a journalist. And that was, that was fucking hard. And um, there are conversations with myself that I don't want to repeat again, but that's the thing. Um, the sort of work we do detracts from those conversations, and in as much as I don't want to have them, perhaps it's necessary. Mm -hmm. So who do I want to be? I still want to be a good journalist. Um, I, I just want to be a functional human as well. Mm. That's it. Mm -hmm. uh, not a heroine. God, no. Uh, I, 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 think, I, I think no journalist should be. I think, I think we stand behind the people. And then if they fall, we have to be able to tell that story. So I guess speaking of being a functional human when we're not steeped in the traumas of our work is that um, for me, when I try to take a break to the extent that I can do recreational and leisurely reading, I'm reading Patricia Evangelista's Some People Need Killing. So now... I have Patricia Evangelista sitting in front of me, and I have to ask, when you're not steeped in your work about the human stories of trauma, mm -hmm. what are you reading for ah, leisure and I decompression? I like this question. <laughs> I read Georgette Hare. Very nice, well-written, ironic love stories. I read Lois McMaster Bujold, mm. who writes the best space operas ever written. I read Jane Austen. I read Arthur Conan Doyle, Sherlock Holmes. Essentially, my, my standard for what I read, I go to places where I can run away. Mm. Good writing, enough to suspend your disbelief with happy endings. 
I can't find hope in my universe, but it damn well better exists mm-hmm. in their imagination. So I borrow their worlds for a little bit. I don't read anything that I know will not have a happy ending. I don't watch any series when I know Uncle Ben will die, or the dog will die, or someone's valet will die. And I'm pretty sure Game of Thrones was a good series. <laughs> and I started reading the book, and then the wolf died, and then I stopped. Um, that's my self-care. Mm-hmm. I sit in an armchair and run away. A little birdie told me that you enjoy Anne of Green Gables. Absolutely. My first love was Gilbert Blythe. <laughs> then I read Emily of New Moon and fell in love with Teddy. Lucy Maud Montgomery is not just a writer of my childhood. She is one of my favorite writers in the world. It's, it's character-driven. It's story-driven. It's mm-hmm. extraordinary. It's, it's the inside of lives, you know, and, and the language is phenomenal. I think across the war, I read a lot of Maud Montgomery. Occasionally, when things were very bad, she would say, she, she said somewhere in the book, um, I think it was Anne, that if you don't go out and go down into the depths of despair, because she, it was a lot of purple prose for mm-hmm. Anne, mm-hmm. if you can't go down to the depths of despair, you don't also get into the heights of absolute joy. I reverse that for me. I don't go to the heights of absolute joy, so I don't have to go to the depths of despair. I try to keep somewhere in the middle. But the thing is, when you do what I do, when something happens, you think about 20 steps ahead. Mm -hmm. And then you try to imagine the worst possible thing and then concede it and then say, I can live with that. Then, when you think that, and it's a very hard thing for a human being to live with, you crack open a book, and then you go to Avonlea, and then things are a little better Yeah. for a moment. Well, that's beautiful. And on that note, Patricia, I want to thank you very much for the wonderful conversation, and thank you very much for holding the line. I'm Cheng Shu. I have been speaking with award-winning journalist Patricia Evangelista, whose new book, Some People Need Killing, a memoir of murder in my country, chronicles the human stories of the drug war in the Philippines. You've been listening to the JCR, a production of the Junior Fellows at Massey College at the University of Toronto.